All right. Well, beloved, it's a joy to be here with all of you this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll begin our uh, our overview of First and Second Peter. So, if you'll pray with me, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your Spirit led these men to leave for us your self-revelation to teach us how to endure persecution. And Lord, I just pray that you would use this word to mature us and grow us in our sanctification and become more like your Son. I thank you for this time together. Would you bless it and use it? I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, what do you think would be the most beneficial thing to write to a people that are enduring strict persecution? And what if that persecution was greater than anything that we could even comprehend here uh, in the Western world that we live in? What if the ruler of your land, the emperor, was crucifying members of your local assembly and setting them on fire? And saying, look, now they're the light of the world, mocking them and maligning them. What if he was enslaving your people? Well, that's really what the question is. That's answered in this letter, and we see how the Spirit leads Peter to write to a people and answers the question of how do we thrive and endure persecution to the glory of God? And the ultimate theme, you'll find it in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 and 19 that I've left for you. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this letter was written by Peter around the year A.D. 64. And just to give you some some background context as to what was going on at the time, their emperor was Emperor Nero. And in his great lust for power and with his ambitions for a growing of the Roman Empire, he sought to burn down much of the entire city that was already standing. And the implications of this were really great considering that the culture would go down in its flames as well and the Roman people had already built their shrines, their idols and their homes would go down with this fire as well and so they went up in a rage whenever he burned down the entire empire so he sought to redirect their anger toward a scapegoat and he did so toward the Christian people in, uh, in this area. And so the Christians were already closely related to the Jews who were formerly despised because of their opposition and uh, differentiation, really, to the Roman culture as a whole. So whenever he blamed the fire on the Christians, they received the strict persecution from the people. And not to mention, the Roman soldiers would still... Uh, search the area and would require people to say, you know, he is Lord. 
you know, uh, they, they would be required to say Caesar is Lord. But you understand, these people weren't very pragmatic. Uh, the Christians couldn't be. I mean, you could understand why you would want to be to save your own life. But to make such a proclamation would be to deny your Savior. But the majority of our study this morning, I'd like to focus upon two categories, and those being the indicatives and imperatives. And we really need to understand the proper order of these two things. In case you don't already know, an, an example of an indicative would be like, that is a chair. And then an example of an imperative would be, sit in that chair. And so what Peter does is extremely pastoral to the people. He gives them indicatives to help them understand who they are. And then, following those indicatives, once they understand and have a grounding of who they are in Christ, he gives them imperatives. He says, because you are these things already, you must do these things. And oftentimes, we as believers want to do things the other way around. We want to do the imperatives so we uh, can earn the indicative, so that we can earn this right standing before God. But that is not how this letter works out. And so uh, I hope that uh, this, this order of uh, description that he gives to the people will be encouraging to all of us. And he begins in chapter 1, calling them elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, and in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what is the nature of this living hope? Well, he says, it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, You have been grieved by various trials for the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes because it is tested by fire, and it is inevitably going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ's return. And he says, Even though you have not seen him, you love him, and although you don't currently see him, you believe in him with inexpressible joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then he brings to their remembrance the prophecies that foretold of this coming grace to greater solidify their foundation as they endure this persecution. He reminds them that this living hope of which they have obtained and are keeping is so glorious that even angels long to even look into it. Isn't that a just worship reading that? Uh, now, he, he transitions from these indicatives to these imperatives. So he says, therefore, because you were all these things, beginning in uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, he assumes that they've already set their minds on sober action. He says, because you have done this and you have embraced sober-mindedness, he exhorts them to set their minds on the hope of which he just described and upon the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Christ in which he also just described. And he makes another assumption that they are obedient children. He doesn't say, be obedient. He says, because you are obedient children, you ought to follow his command to not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, 
but rather to be holy as the one whom he has called them to this living hope in which they abide. And this holiness pertains to all conduct. We glorify God best by reflecting his character. Holiness is essential to the new nature of a Christian because we are to mirror the one whom we serve. And people act in accordance to what or whom they are slaves to, and that will be one of two things, either sin or righteousness. And then he transitions back into some indicatives in verse 18. Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile, fruitless, vain ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the imperishable, imperishable blood of the spotless lamb. And he describes that lamb as being foreknown before the foundation of the world. And the implications of that statement are really stifling. If, uh, if you'll hear what was written by Peter, or actually spoken by Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter said that this Jesus that was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, which you, the Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, this just being a side note, by way of reminder, is that the fall of Adam was not surprising to God, because the gospel was always plan A. Returning to the letter in verse 23, Peter writes another indicative, presuming that those who are born again are done so by the word, which is the good news that he is proclaiming to them. Then he transitions into some more imperatives beginning in chapter 2. Because you are these things in Christ, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and long for pure spiritual milk. Why? Well, because as they come to Christ, who is the cornerstone, they are to be stones as well, living stones being built up as a spiritual house, rooted and grounded in even just the basic truths of the gospel. Some final indicatives that I'll present to you here, because many of them are, uh, are similar in nature. He writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now that, that once you were a people, but now you are God's people, and once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. If you'll remember, that is a reference from the Old Testament book of Hosea, which they would have certainly been familiar with at the time, since that was the only revelation that they had in writing in that moment. And some final imperatives here is, he says, now that you are God's people, as sojourners and exiles which we ought to view ourselves in this way. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and be subject to every human institution. Live as people who are free, not for evil, but for the honor and glory of God. Servants, be subject to your masters, even those who are unjust, for this is a reflection of Christ. He also talks about wives, unbelieving husbands, things of that nature. He says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, even if they're not believers, so that you may win them without a word. And he says, Do not let your adorning be external. You know, gaudy jewelry and things of that nature. In this specific context, 
were more to draw attention to self than they are in present day. Um, the braiding of the hair and things like that were, were pretty extravagant at the time. It says, Husbands, love your wives and live with them in an understanding way. Show them honor as the weaker vessel and see that you are both heirs of the grace of life. Have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. And this final imperative is extremely important. He says, arm yourselves with the same thinking of the suffering Christ so as to no longer live in the passions of the flesh. This really is the foundation of how we can endure persecution to the glory of God is remembering that Christ suffered and his suffering was greater because it was a unique kind of suffering. Not because he was crucified, many people were crucified, but because he was sinless and because he had kept the moral law perfectly and because he was God himself. And so because he went before us in this suffering, we can follow after him. Some important doctrines that you can find explicitly in this letter. He talks about the variations of God's gifts to his people, uh, the resurrection of Christ, the doctrine of perseverance, the doctrine of adoption, and penal substitutionary atonement. A lot of these are just found kind of subtly within the, the text of Scripture. And really, these essential doctrines, these core doctrines, are what the Spirit guided him to write. I mean, these, these things are necessary for us to recall in moments of persecution. We need to remember who we are whenever we're undergoing these things because sometimes we can get lost in the midst of the oppression that we might receive and that they certainly were receiving at this time. And the conclusion of this first letter is addressed to those in eldership, which really reveals to us um, the importance of, of eldership, even according to God himself. And he tells them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He then encourages the young people to be subject to these elders. And that is... Uh, of course, how a biblical church ought to be and ought to function. And some final words of exhortation from Peter in chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. He writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, regarding the second letter of Peter, he's mainly emphasizing reminders and he's warning them against false teachers that are coming into these dispersed bodies of believers in Asia Minor. And there has been some dispute and some questioning about whether this letter is in fact authored by Peter, but scholars believe that Obviously it is because it's in the canon, but according to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he writes that this is now the second letter that I have written to you so that we can trust that it is from him. And Peter really sought to expose and defeat the false teachings that were overwhelming this area. 
And although he doesn't identify any false teacher or teaching by name, he often generally describes these teachings in opposition to Christ in the scriptures, which that's all we really need to know, right? So this letter can really be broken up into four distinct parts. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, it's knowing your scriptures. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, it's know your adversaries. Oh, sorry, I skipped one. Know your salvation, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Know your scriptures, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Know your adversaries, chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. And know your prophecy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And it's pretty helpful to, uh, to have that kind of outlined for us. Knowing your salvation, he, he kind of reminds them of the same things that he wrote in the first letter. He says, God in his divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. He has promised us that we'll become partakers of his nature. And now that's not how the Mormons interpret it, uh, interpret it uh, as in being deified, as in becoming like God or becoming a God. He's simply writing that we are becoming partakers of his nature and glory, being born again and being made like Jesus. We've escaped the corruption of the world and its sinful desires. And we must have a growing of godly qualities, lest we be fruitless for the kingdom and forget that we've been forgiven of former sins. And then he says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, I don't know why, but this particular verse of scripture reminds me of Paul's writings to the church in Philippi to carry out their faith with much fear and trembling and to test yourselves against the scripture as he wrote to the church in Corinth. So there seems to be this, this theme of confirming and testing yourself in light of scripture, confirming your calling from God. So he tells them to assure themselves according to the word. Now, as far as knowing your scriptures... He writes, you already know the truth, for it's been established to you. And I will stir you up by way of reminder, which he is doing. And I will make every effort so that when he is gone, they'll be able to recall this truth. And then, once again, he he brings up the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And this word is a lamp shining in a dark place. And another uh, helpful verse from chapter 1 is, well, verses, rather, verses 19 through 21. I think it's starting in 20, actually. No prophecy comes by a man's own interpretation, nor is produced by the will of man, but men spoke of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this, this verse in particular helps us to understand exactly how uh, the writings of Scripture came to be and the nature of them as well. Part 3, Knowing Your Adversaries. He says that they will bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. Now this really brings up an interpretive issue. For how could the Lord have purchased someone who is denying them? That's kind of confusing, right? Well, scholars think that this verse is really actually layered with a hint of sarcasm uh, so as to illustrate an analogy rather than something that's theological. He's saying that 
while they're professing to believe in Christ, but they're completely denying him with their teaching. And he supposedly bought them, but everything that they're teaching is opposite as to what he actually said and what has been revealed. He's just exposing the falsehood of their profession of faith. He says, Many will follow in their sensualities, and the way of truth will be blasphemed. They will exploit you with their greed and false words, but their condemnation and destruction is not asleep. And he writes that Sodom and Gomorrah were examples of what will happen to the ungodly. And he expounds on their utter doom and their terrible character. So these false teachers are simply just opposing Christ. He doesn't have to give them a name. And the last part of this letter is knowing your prophecy, chapter 3. He says, To remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that scoffers will come in the last days. In his exhortation, Peter's exhortation was again reminding them of the word of God confirmed and realized in them. He redirects their thoughts to the authority of the scriptures, for that is their only source of truth that can guide them in persecution. And another really interesting uh, interpretive challenge of this letter, I wasn't really sure if I was going to discuss this here, um, because this issue can be kind of tense at times. But in, in the third chapter of this second letter, in verse 9, it's written that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And this is really when, now at all times it matters, but this is really a time when context is helpful uh, for us to understand <clears throat> whether God has conflicting desires or not. Whether he actually wants to judge sinners or whether he is just simply waiting for the day that I guess the entire world will repent. I'm not sure how people would interpret that otherwise. But if you look in verse 7, we actually see that the world is being stored up for fire and is being kept until the day of destruction of the ungodly. So following that, if he's talking about the destruction of the ungodly in verse 7 and he transitions from that to verse 9 and him hoping that all will come to repentance, it's kind of confusing if we were to interpret it in light of that. How would he want to judge the ungodly yet also wait for all to come to repentance? Well, I'll leave that up to your own discernment. God is not going to wait until the whole world repents to return for his church. He is simply waiting to bring his elect people in before he brings down his judgment. So a conclusive um, passage of scripture for us this morning, and it looks like I'm going to leave you all with quite a bit of time until uh, the sermon actually takes place. But I'm going to go ahead and conclude for us here with verses 17 through 18 of the third chapter. He writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, if you go ahead and bow with me, we'll go ahead and 
close our time together. Father, we are so grateful. We're grateful that you sent your son and that he was in agreement with you and what you were set out to accomplish for us and for your own glory. We thank you that you were willing to come and die while we were yet sinning and rebelling against you. I thank you, Lord, for your perfect sacrifice. I pray, God, that this example that we have in your Son would encourage us and that the words of your Apostle would guide us, especially as things seem to be growing progressively worse here in this world. As the sin that so easily ensnares us is at our doorstep, that the world and all of those who are ungodly are opposed to you, and they're encouraging us to join in with them. And we know that Satan is still present and is prowling like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. With all these things, Lord, I pray that we would hold tight to your truth. But we know, God, that your word says we are kept by your power. And so ultimately you are holding us, and we are thankful for that. I pray that you would use this, and that if any truth were to have been shared this morning, that it would be rooted deeply in our hearts, and if there be any falsehoods, would they simply uh, pass the ears of the listeners and I just thank you for your body and for, uh, for gathering us here this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.